Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. by Mia Farrow from the soundtrack to the 1968 film Rosemary's Baby, and it is available as part of the soundtrack on Apple Music. Are you wide awake, sir? I love Pink Floyd music. I never listen to Pink Floyd in the car because for the most part, it just kind of mellows me out to that point where I, I, I can start to zone out as I'm driving. It's a creepy lullaby. I don't think you'd want to be humming that or singing that to your grandkids. No, no, that, that'd be that'd be the thing of, of nightmares. Yeah, but it does very well represent our episode because we're talking about two very creepy, frightening movies. We are doing a double feature. Shocker, surprise. <laughs> it is our fourth annual Summer at the Drive-In month two. This month, we are going back in time to 1973, Pontiac, Michigan at the Pontiac Drive-In Theater. And we are going to be watching The Legend of Hell House, which was a new movie in 1973. And uh, the second feature was Rosemary's Baby, which at that point was, what, five years old. A great, great film to pair up with Legend of Hell House. Uh, Creepiness abounds in both of these films. Was there any nickname or name for this double feature pairing Richard in the newspaper ad? Looking at the original ad here, and no, not really. Just the ads, nothing catchy. For the sake of your sanity, pray it isn't true. First run, The Legend of Hell House. Also, Mia Farrow, Rosemary's Baby. Pretty cut and dry, pretty simple. I have a suggestion. All right. Satan Under the Stars. (laughs) Well, yes, that that would work. Looking at this drive-in ad, kind of funny because the the other films, they're all across the board. Different drive-in theaters, but they were all in one ad, so I'm assuming maybe the same ownership. So there was the Miracle Mile drive-in theater, which had a very interesting triple feature. Scream, Blackula, Scream, followed by Dagmar's Hot Pants Incorporated and (laughs) Swedish Fly Girls. Hmm, one of these things is not like the other. Exactly. Now, at the Waterford drive-in, they were doing... A couple of films that that made a bit more sense. Uh, Badge 373 with Robert Duvall and Raquel Welch in Hanny Calder. And the triple feature at the Blue Sky drive-in makes total sense. We have student teachers, student nurses, and the hot box. In fact, the little ad says, Ravaged, Savaged, the hot box. Very different episode if we were talking about those. Yeah, we might have to put a disclaimer on that one. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. 
And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. I'm going to bang the gavel on the dash and we'll call this meeting to order. Since we've got a little time until we arrive, Richard, do you have anything else to tell us about the Pontiac Drive-In Theater? I do, actually. The uh, Pontiac Drive-In Theater, located in Pontiac, Michigan, opened up way back in May 1950. It was located at uh, 2935 Dixie Highway, US 10, one block north of Telegraph Road. It was opened by Elton Samuels and William Clark of Clark Theater Services and had an initial car capacity of 794 cars. By 1952, it was owned by Mutual Theaters out of Detroit. And by the 1970s, it had expanded to a capacity of 1,267 cars. Now, according to a former manager who posted some comments on a uh, drive-in website, the drive-in was, was highly successful even on into the 1970s. Sometimes they would play the movies a second time. They would have people wanting to see the movie that didn't catch it the first time. So after they would do their double feature, essentially they'd shut down the box office, reopen the box office, and would have a whole new set of people coming, I'm guessing, in the early hours of the morning. Apparently they used to have Campbell's Hot Soup machines at the drive-in. And it was like a legit machine, said Campbell's Soup on it. And along with your hot, steaming hot coffee that you could get, you could get a bowl of clam chowder or tomato soup. Not what I would the, think of a drive-in theater fair, but, you know, and nonetheless. Yeah, they, the tomato soup I can see, but the clam chowder, I think, is a bit frightening. Yeah, coming out of a machine. I don't know. And I guess they even had a Campbell's vending machine at one point. Hmm. The drive-in theater closed in 1990. It was uh, eventually demolished after a series of fires set by vandals. And so pretty much now it doesn't resemble anything that a drive-in theater used to be there, unfortunately. But it had a long life. It lasted 40 years. It managed to survive the 1980s and even 70s when a lot of drive-in theaters were starting to close, but couldn't survive into the 1990s, really. You've set the stage as far as the location. Why don't you set the stage as far as the time period? What? else was going on in 1973. We shall go back to the week of June 16th, 1973, and the top 10 songs in the land. A couple of other tidbits, you know I always like to do this. So there was a song debuting at number 98 on the Billboard Hot 100, a song called Music Everywhere by Tufano and Gia Marisi. Ring a bell? No, no. not quite. <laughs> no. It peaked at number 68, and it was their one hit. Just under the top 40 at number 44 was a song called Money by Pink Floyd, mm -hmm. mentioning Pink Floyd earlier. Uh, that eventually hit number 13. And of course, from Dark Side of the Moon, which ended up and is still considered one of the biggest top selling albums of all time. It was on the Billboard Top 200 charts on into the 1980s, I know, consecutively. It was there for an incredibly long time. All right, top 10. Let's see which of these songs you remember. I'm pretty sure you know number 10. Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree by... Oh, boy, do I. By Dawn, featuring Tony Orlando. Whoa, I didn't realize that. Yeah, actually, in the beginning, it was Dawn featuring Tony Orlando, and then Tony took over shortly thereafter. And sometimes that song, of course, is now referred to as Tony Orlando and Dawn. Hmm. Number nine, Kodachrome. 
by Paul Simon. Oh, I like that song. I do too. I like Paul Simon. Number eight. It's not a song that gets played a lot in rotation nowadays. Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth by George Harrison. Hmm. Did you recognize it once you heard no. it? It sounds like one that my, you just don't know the name of. Uh, yeah, no, I played it and I never, it just did not ring a bell. I've never heard that to the best of my knowledge. Some of these songs get played in regular rotation on the Golden Oldies channels or the 70s or the 80s channels on uh, satellite radio, but this song kind of got lost in time. I, I've never heard it. And also, sadly, if I remember them, it's because that was my during my <laughs> formative years and I, there was yeah. no Golden Oldies. I was hearing them as they were on the top 10, probably. <laughs> Number seven, Will It Go Round in Circles by Billy Preston. Oh, yeah. You'd know. You'd know it. I didn't know it, actually. When I played it, it didn't ring a bell. I've got a song I ain't got no melody. I'm gonna sing it to my friends. Song number six does ring a bell with me. I've always loved this song. Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group. Yeah, I love it. He's a freaky looking dude, but I love that song. Number five, this song still gets played today. Daniel by Elton John. Perennial mm. classic. Number four, a song that I, I have heard of. It's Barry White, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Listen to one Barry White song, you've listened to them all, and you probably could come up with the title and it would match a song of his. His latest hit, I'm Gonna Love You. Just a little more, baby. That's my horrible Barry White. Oh, that was close. Number three, Pillow Talk by Sylvia. Hmm. Now, the song at number two, I did not recognize by the name. When I played it, I was like, oh, my God. I used to love this song in 1973. I remembered listening to it on the radio in my mom's 67, I think, Corvair. All we had was AM radio, and there was a radio station at that time. Back then, there were stations on AM dial that actually played contemporary music. I don't know if you'll know the name of the song, but it's called Playground in My Mind by Clint Holmes. I think I do. Part of the lyrics is like, I've got a nickel, shiny and new. He's singing, and the kids are singing along with him. When I heard that part, it took me back 50 years. I used to love that song as a kid. I don't know why. Maybe it was because it was a kid singing. And I actually used to sing that song because of my parents, you know, a little prank monkey that I was. It's like, hey, sing that song. And oh. I would sing that part of the song. Oh, I didn't realize you were a vocalist all your life. I thought it was just for our podcast. I think I've mentioned once before, I used to have an old reel-to-reel tape recorder. And I loved the branded TV series with Chuck Connors. And it was on syndication. I actually recorded myself singing the theme song to Brandon. Thankfully, that tape is long gone. Oh, man, you know what I'd give to hear that? There was still audio cassette recordings. My dad used to interview me when I was a little kid, all the way up until I became a butt-headed teenager. I think on one of the earlier ones, I might be singing. We digitized all these. Richard, we are close enough that we can start thinking about our 100th episode. And I bet our listeners would love that as a special treat. You've got 18 more episodes to I'll I'll see what I can see what I can come up with. Anyway, number one, third week of an eventual four weeks at number one, My Love by Paul McCartney and Wings. Uh, I like that one too. At the box office, I was caught off guard by this. Number one for the week of June 20th, 
was The Hammer of God, written, directed, and starring Jimmy Wang Yu. The previous week, the number one movie was The Chinese Connection with Bruce Lee. Now, I know that there was Kung Fu mania, Kung Fu fighting the whole nine yards. Bruce Lee mania was going wild. I did not realize that all these other Kung Fu movies ended up being like huge at the box office. Other big movies of the year included the movie we've talked about here, The Poseidon Adventure, Soylent Green with Charlton Heston, and Chuck Connors is in that, amongst many others. I love that movie. Live and Let Die, James Bond enters the world of black exploitation kind of sort of voodoo film. Other horror movies of 1973 included, and now the screaming starts, The Crazies, The Creeping Flesh, Don't Look in the Basement. We have Frankenstein, The True Story, The Exorcist, probably one of the biggest movies of the year. We have Scream, Blackula Scream, which we just talked about. Theater of Blood, which we have talked about on this show before. Did I mention Messiah of Evil? Yeah, so we talked about Messiah of Evil on the show before. Leptirica was in 1973, which up until uh, the last year or so, I would never even heard this movie. But it's one of the movies mentioned in that box set, Woodland Days and Dark something I never will ever remember that title. And of course, The Wicker Man, also in 1973. A true classic. If we weren't at the theater and we wanted to stay home, Saturday night, June 16th, 1973, if we were watching ABC, it was a night of stuff I've never heard (laughs) of any of these shows. So I did had to do some research on these. Here we go again. A situation comedy about divorced couples starring Larry Hagman. It lasted a grand 13 episodes. This was followed by A Touch of Grace, a comedy about a widow's romance with another man. The widow being Shirley Booth, formerly known as Hazel, and the other man being J. Patrick O'Malley. If you don't know the name, you know the face. Guess what? This show lasted 13 episodes. Hmm. So then we had The Strauss Family. This was a 1972 British drama about the Johann Strauss family that making its way onto ABC, and it lasted eight episodes. And then we rounded out the night on ABC with a crime drama starring James Wainwright called Jigsaw. And guess what? This one lasted eight episodes. So a night of stellar drama and comedy on ABC. Over at NBC, we had some better viewing options. We had Emergency, which was, of course, big at this point. And we had Grand Prix, the 1966 film with James Garner. This was originally a three-hour movie. So yes, this was part one of a two-part presentation. Over at CBS, probably your best options for the night. There was All in the Family and then a situation comedy that I've actually heard of before. We may have even mentioned it on the show at one point. Bridget Loves Bernie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, David Bernie, Meredith Baxter, about a Catholic marrying a Jewish woman, I think. I think that's the way it worked. We also had the Mary Tyler Moore show. We had the Bob Newhart show. And we were in repeat mode. So we had episode from the last season of Mission Impossible. If we were at the drive-in theater, though, I can tell you what some of the popular candies were of the day. Oh, yeah. Brand new candy bar 1973 or what it is one of the most popular was the marathon bar bottle caps 
was uh, very popular. I still love bottle caps to this mm-hmm. day. I always love the root beer flavored ones. Twizzlers, which I know you're you're a fan of Twizzlers, and York peppermint patties. Mm. Coke was 40 cents, and popcorn was about 50 cents. That would have been our, our more popular choices, along, of course, with a hot cup of coffee, hey. and some nachos, and some hot dogs. I'm pretty sure by the 70s, the Campbell's hot soup machine was probably gone. So mm. we're not going to get to have that clam chowder with our hot coffee. Thank you for setting us up for that. And let's uh, not forget our regular features in old business. We have a couple of new members to welcome to our Facebook group page, which Richard, you can find that on Facebook. There we go. Okay. All right. Let us welcome Daryl Sonia Anderson, John Reimer, and Alyssa Johnson. I have to call out Alyssa. She is a coworker of mine and bless her heart. I don't know that she's actually listened to an episode, but she's claimed to, and she joined our Facebook group page, and I gave her a Classic Horrors Club sticker. Okay, Thank so you, Alyssa. If you are listening, we appreciate the support. And our other supporters that we always call out are my dear mother and brother, Jay. They uh, always support us from California and give feedback, not officially, but at least share that they've listened and... We do appreciate that. So hi, Mom and Jay. Hi, Jeff's brother. Hi, Jeff's mom. And I want to do a special thank you to to Jay. He was very unexpected, arrived just before Monster Bash, a care package for Jeff and I. For those of you who are in the know, I picked up Jeff on the way to the bash. He flew into St. Louis, which is about four hours away from Kansas City. We spent a lot of time in the car and on the trip together. We had a great care package. Really cool stuff, not even food related. Thank you very, very much. It was very much appreciated. All very tasty. I'm not saying that the zombie Captain America was tasty. Maybe he is. I don't know. How about the gas card? Was that tasty? Did you lick it? Ah, that's it'd be kind of gross. But uh, no, it was that care package was awesome. Thank and you. you don't know my brother as well as I do, oddly. He's full of things like that. He is always doing super sweet and thoughtful things. And I don't know if he'll ever know how much I appreciate him. Richard, we have some feedback this month, this episode, from our good friend, Bill Mize. Hello, my Rich, and hello, my Jeff. It's Bill Mize, and I'm just calling in to throw some feedback and some other goodies your way. First and most importantly, it was an absolute joy to meet you both finally at the most recent Monster Bash convention in beautiful downtown Mars, Pennsylvania. It was wonderful to hang out with you, break bread with you, have some adult beverages with you, and just generally enjoy your company. Thank you both so much for making my bash even better. I truly hope that we can meet up again, if not at the bash, then perhaps another convention. There have been rumblings of a Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention meeting next year. We shall see. Maybe we can double dip and do a monster bash in June and then Mid-Atlantic in September. We shall see indeed. Next up, it's my favorite time of the year, summer. It brings beautiful weather here to Winchester, and it also brings Jeff and Richard's time-traveling drive-in road trip across America, which are some of my favorite themed episodes that you do each year. 
especially since I am sometimes involved in said road trip. Yes, I am that much of an egomaniac. To the episode itself, my late father loved westerns, so it was with a happy heart that I listened to your most recent episode with both Billy the Kid and Jesse James making an appearance. There was even a Stephen D. Sullivan cameo. Now, not in the movies, of course, unless he was perhaps one of the more unsavory clientele partaking of sarsaparilla or whiskey in the bar, being the rapscallion that he is. It turns out that that rascally scribe is working on a Paul Nashie werewolf book. I don't know if it's fiction or nonfiction. I assume the former, but let's just say that I am interested, as I love that whole Valdemar Daninsky series and lore. Well, that's about it for me. Again, I wish you two the best. Thank you again for making my bash very special. And I'll see you soon again, either here on the show or at a convention dealer's room or bar near you very soon. Take care. God bless. We'll talk to you later. Awesome feedback as always. Thank you, sir. It was an absolute pleasure to finally meet you face-to-face in the real world. Got that hug that you promised, and it was everything that you promised and more. With one exception, I at least did not participate in any of those so-called beverages that he mentioned. I I think he was hoarding those up in his room. I think had we stayed Sunday night, I have a feeling that we would have tied one on. We might have participated. Richard, this might be a good time just to kind of briefly mention Monster Bash. And I thought we've talked so much about it in the past. We don't really need to rehash. But I just want to ask you, what was one, maybe two things that you enjoyed the most out of Monster Bash, excluding the people, which, of course, is understood to be the number one thing that we get out of Monster Bash? Gosh, I always enjoy the Q&As. Definitely enjoyed Audrey Dalton and Beverly Washburn's Q&As. I Really enjoyed the the talks. Frank J. Delastrito and uh, Gregory Mank uh, got both of their their newest books. I loved seeing the Mexican horror film, and I loved the outside drive-in theater. But we got a chance to see a monster that challenged the world. Yes. Audrey Dalton, who was one of the stars for the weekend, was there. That would be some of the highlights for me. What about you? Mine was, without a doubt, the... Well, I guess you can't call it a Q&A. The presentation, maybe, that Daniel Roebuck made. The he, Daniel Roebuck show, I think. is Yes, there, that's a good yes. way. Yeah, so they Absolutely. did a screening of a documentary that he did, which I enjoyed immensely yes. and risked life and limb to get a copy of it on DVD before they were all sold and, out. And you got my copy as well. I will thank you for that. You, you You're welcome. Them for both of us. You're welcome. But there were technical issues and there was time that had to be filled. And he did that spontaneously and was very, very funny. Yes. And also serious in a humorous way about the whole issue of toxicity on the internets. If you don't know Daniel Roebuck, he's been in a lot of things, but he was Grandpa Munster in Star Trek, Star Trek Connection. (laughs) Yes. Okay. In Rob Zombie's The Munsters, he played Grandpa, and that, if you didn't know, got a little bit of backlash, so interesting to hear him comment on that. Just 
entertaining and feature-wise of Monster Bash, the most entertaining thing that I experienced this year. Definitely one of us, big monster kid, had a big collection and got rid of it and then has acquired some of it back. So <laughs> that would be me. Uh, if I finally did purge, I'd start buying it back. Let's tell people how they can leave feedback as Bill did. He sent us an MP3 actually at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. We loaded it into the system and played it back for you. He easily also could have called our hotline, if you will, 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. Gotta find those tapes. I also would like to remind everyone to check out our video companion on our YouTube channel. Go to YouTube at Classic Horrors TV and you will find visual accompaniment to this audio podcast. We're here. Plenty of time to go to the concession stand. Let's do that. And then we'll come back and talk about the legend of Hell House. Monsters do have their place in the zoo, in your nightmares, in the deep, in your favorite horror movies, but not in your living room, on your TV. Don't let pay TV be the monster in your living room. Pay TV and cable TV companies are seeking the right to charge you for the very programs you now get free. If you want to stop pay TV and save free television, sign the petition in the lobby of this theater. Let your lawmakers know how you feel in the fight against pay TV and cable TV. Traveling down a dusty road, going to meet my friends, heading for the movies right around the bend. Looking for a good time, looking for what's real, knowing that a good time is the thing that's real. It's the real thing, Coke. Intermission is the time, refreshments and my friends, knowing all along that's where it all begins. Looking for a good time, looking for what's real, knowing that a good time is the thing that's real. Especially when it's Coca-Cola, it's the real thing. Yes, Coke is the good time, real thing. Show starts in five minutes. make this house so evil murder vampirism cannibalism drug addiction alcoholism sadism mutilation how did it end if it had ended we would not be here
he's inside me. Even as I'm speaking to you, I can, I can, I can feel him just waiting in there to take over. The house tried to kill me. It almost succeeded. I don't accept this. I do not accept this. Oh my gosh, Richard, they scared me to death knocking on our window. Who is that? Hey, I brought you guys some burgers. <laughs> I brought them home, made them myself. It's dark, but I think that's Greg and Genius. Oh, yes. You all got room in there. It's uh, not necessarily. Yeah, hop in the back seat. You don't yeah. want to talk about this. Guys, movie. Come on in. So you hopped in your DeLorean and, and you came back to 1973. It's kind of crazy how we always meet our friends at, the, at these drive-in theaters. It's almost like we're being stalked. Listen, we only stalk in, you know, what we love and what we're around and what we appreciate. It's because so. we love you. It's because we love you guys. <laughs> we love you guys. Sincerely, thank you. Sincerely, thank you for having us on here. Uh, we always like to say when you're on our show, you're asking to join up without a doubt. So unfortunately, I now have you're a, slumming it, dude. Yeah, I have to apologize for your listener base that, yeah, they someone canceled. We came in at the last minute. They were kind enough to actually answer our rap at the uh, the car window. <laughs> your car value yeah. just shut down a whole bunch of digits now that we're in here. You didn't no, have to drive off the lot for this one. Not true. Yeah, absolutely not. I, I will beg to differ, sir. <laughs> I mean, we know you very well. Why don't you tell our listeners who you are? Yeah, we are a a weekly horror podcast that uh, originated here in Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas. Mm-hmm. We're we're cross state lines, <laughs> but more than anything, uh, we've been and actually, this is going on. I know in sometime in July, we've actually hit our four hundredth episode. Mm-hmm. So we've been doing this since about two thousand and fifteen, and it is literally just an excuse to get together once a week, talk about movies you watch, and talk about horror. Yeah, and. Whether it's like first time watches for both of us or whether it's talking about, you know, stuff that we is comfort food, old favorites, new ones, releases, even. And we try to stay positive about everything. That's the biggest thing I'd say. And just in terms of kind of what our vibe is now, that's not to say that we're not vulgar because oh, we're critical and we'll be. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm on my good behavior. I got <laughs> he's got the shot collar on me and everything. <laughs> but that is to say that we legitimately love everything that we talk about. And that's why we want to devote the time mm-hmm. to talk about things that we love rather than devote time to things that we just eh, it wasn't for us. Right. I mean, and then we're not always going to be like everything sunshine and roses. If we have some beef, beef. criticism, we're going to lay it out there. But at the same time, we're always going in looking to have a good time with the movie and especially first time movies, especially ones that are considered classics that I can now check off my bucket list like this one. Because this one was nuts. This one was crazy. That is to say, anytime that we can expand our horizons, and especially without the podcast. Across the pond. (laughs) We'll get to across the pond. But without the show itself, we would not be here with you guys at this point. Mm -hmm. And you guys are like mainstays of our end of the mouth match madness. Like the one year we didn't have you on, we regretted it. It was off. Just everything (laughs) was just... (laughs) 
other. No, and it's that's like when you don't. It's like when you see the Disney logo in front of the new Star Wars trilogy, and there's no twentieth instead of the twentieth century. Yeah. Something's yeah. not quite right. And that is to say, then, yeah, that's something we've been do- been doing for quite some time, and you guys have always been mainstays in our forty-year-old films. In fact, that's the whole thing of with Into the Martha March Madness. It is a March Madness style tournament where we celebrate films that are celebrating movies that are celebrating like incremental 10 year anniversaries. And we get to ha- invite our friends and favorite podcast to hop into our car. Oh, and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. And you all have been kind enough to be the folks that have always brought and from the sleazy seventies to the early eighties. Now, as we get into there, I love the fact that you've been with us to the more salacious material. <laughs> and we've also brought up some PTSD. Well, we're paying you back tonight then. Yeah. Yes. You what are was not kidding. Much, what was it? Eaten Alive was, I think, yep. the first year that we did. Man, I, I, I'm still taking showers because of that one. <laughs> In between like that and Martin and just all of those films that are based in character, but also are not afraid to get a little dirty. Yeah. And one thing I've always said, you can't really appreciate the flowers unless you respect the roots. Seeing a movie like this, one of those old G classic ones <laughs> that like feels like it's made one. It, it feels like it's one of those. And I hate this term, but it feels like a modern elevated horror. You know, I hate the term, but it's more artistic. And and, and it just it feels like it should be like a 24. It feels like this old school, almost like cylindrical. Everything old is new again. And that's what I love about seeing these old movies again. I feel like I should have seen, and I probably have said, yeah, I've seen that movie. Well, and that's why I love the fact that you were able to bring us on for a film that is indeed celebrating an anniversary as it is what it's 50th year. Yeah. Of terrifying and traumatizing people out there. <laughs> and titillating. Woo. Good Lord. Listen, you know, this is a movie that I, I thought that I had seen as well, but if I did see it at some point, it didn't stick with me like it did this time. This was a first time viewing as far as I'm concerned for me as well. So I know that Jeff had seen this one, but. Yeah, I had seen it a few years ago and wrote about it. And I, I'm in a stage where I'm watching all these movies that I used to not like. And now I love them. That's certainly the case with this. I, I'll tell you as we talk about it, what sort of my nitpicks were last time, but totally can overlook them now. I, I think it's a terrific movie. Before we get too far deep, I want to circle back for a second. Everyone knows I used to live in Kansas City. I knew you guys and I listened from day one to your podcast. The love comes through. It's just you've got a chemistry and every episode is so entertaining and just makes me laugh. I really look forward to them. And when we are on your show, we get to experience that live and we appreciate being invited to do that. You guys' show. It's different in tone than ours. And I think that's the fun thing about podcasts. If you listen to podcasts and they're all the same, then it's it's not as fun as if you have, you know, three or four or five different podcasts that you listen to that are all very different in tone and maybe cover different eras of films. So uh, we may kind of, you know, stick more with some of the, the classic stuff. You guys, you know, go with, you know, some classic, but more uh, recent as well. Yeah, you guys make me laugh every time I listen to your show. You guys are are hilarious and entertaining and educational. As someone that does listen to a lot of podcasts, and uh, I do appreciate that because they kind of supplement a lot of my 
I'm not going to say social interactions, but I spend a lot of time with folks like you as fellow podcasters. And again, I've got weekly rotations. So thank you for that. I, that's appreciative. Someone that yeah. really knows, I think, what a podcast can do and whether that is give you a, a smile or go, oh, that's pretty good. Or in some cases, like, oh, my God, I never want to hear that again. <laughs> that's, we appreciate that's my that. department. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but, but, sincerely, thank you guys. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. The windows are getting pretty steamy from all this love going on. (laughs) (laughs) And and then one more thing. If anyone's listening from Kansas City, I'm sure you know these guys and we don't need to to tell you, but it started when I was there. But now that I've left, you like our horror in Kansas City. You're constantly hosting screenings and doing events. Tell us a little bit about that. We hang around horror. We're definitely not horror. We... We so yeah we do a weekly thing here at Screenland Armor. If you are in the in the Kansas City area, be it Missouri, Kansas, mm-hmm. in the Midwest, and coming to town for a visit, it is well worth it because they are genre lovers and they have been kind enough that we've been doing a weekly series called Friday Night Frights. Every Friday about nine nine thirty, we come out, we show a horror movie, and we've gone from the classics. We've gone uh, Black Sunday. We shown uh, Let's Scare Jessica to death. And to oh, death and, games. Oh, death. God, God, death <laughs> games. That one is another one that will. And Who's that's the man who. Da, 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 uh. And the thing is, though, it's that communal experience. And especially we are all about celebrating when someone's watching a movie to, for the first time. What do you like to say? Yeah, there's no shame in our game. So yeah. we're always all about like, hey, you, you're lucky that you get to see this movie that we've only seen on TV, that we've only seen on Channel 62 in the theater the way it's supposed to be made and seen. It's this almost badge of honor, you know, and and we try to make sure that we're having fun. Yeah. I personally look at it as like not quite the spirit of the old horror host, but we come in and say, hey, this is the movie that we're watching. This is why you should love it because this is why we love it. We, are, we do trivia and all that kind of fun stuff. We are the so. flavor flave to the Chuck D that is the movie. You right. know, it's all about hyping it up, hopefully, you know, and again, but also, you know, Panic Fest, Panic Film Festival, which is now kind of a nationally recognized independent genre festival. You know, we're lucky enough always to help host Q&As, do our live podcast there. But again, more than anything, it's just being able to contribute to the genre that we love and prove that Kansas city is a horror genre town. We love horror in yeah. Kansas city. I mean, whether it be with the haunted houses that are in Kansas city down at the bottoms, uh, the Kansas city horror club, shameless plug and all the other different <laughs> like panic fest and all the other things that are here. Why not celebrate them? Why not champion and loud the cool spooky stuff that you can do in KC? So that's kind of just what we did. We noticed that there was a little bit of a gap and we tried to fill it as best as we can. And we are just extremely happy, proud and lucky that people enjoy the same things that we enjoy. Yep. Royalty. We we have royalty among us. You, you guys are saying we elevate you. You guys, you guys are Kansas City royalty. Absolutely. So, oh, yeah. really? I do have barbecue sauce on my <laughs> shirt, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can tell you. I hope people realize what they have in Kansas City and appreciate it because I can't find anything like this in Minneapolis. And I've searched. There's a Facebook group page of Minnesota horror lovers or something. There's very little activity. 
maybe you guys need to come up here, make a visit and sprinkle your fairy dust around so that something will sprout. Just let us know. Minnesota uh, Crypticon. Minnesota Crypticon. If you've got a theater that you know that wants to help and that needs a host, let us know while we're there. That is the other thing, really, though, is that we we are very lucky to have Screenland here. Mm -hmm. And they are. They facilitate us. They're the playhouse to our peewee. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So let's get into this movie. And before we start, I have a disclaimer that I need to read. Although the story of this film is fictitious, the events depicted involving psychic phenomena are not only very much within the bounds of possibility, but could well be true. See, that's a phony baloney. I, I wrote that down too. I was like, not quite based on actual events, but it could. However, happen. It's coming from a psychic consultant to European, European royalty. royalty, you cannot get more efficient. I almost felt like, dun, dun, bum, bum, like, oh, this stuff's so fancy. I need two monocles for this goat. You know what I'm saying? I was like, how do I get that job? And like, what do I need to do? Like, well, that I want to say this from the get go, you guys. I was not properly prepared for what I experienced with the Legend of Hell House. No, and thankfully, that disclaimer kind of started us off with some levity, which it gave me a giggle. I was like, none of this stuff's about to happen, but it could. <laughs> and after we, I'm like. I'm still waiting. <laughs> well, I will say this. I want to say thank you yes. for this because yes, yes. I'm all we're all about filling in those horror gaps. And as many 400 episodes, that's at least 400 films we've seen. About filling some gaps. Oh, Jesus Lord. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Being able to fill in those haunted house gaps because I will tell you this. I went in thinking this film was an anthology a la tales from the crypt for some reason really yes i had so many misnomers and misgivings with this movie that when everything hits that when it hits it hit with so much more of a tremendous force that i was gobsmacked throughout this movie i audibly gasped and cheered at least three times throughout this film (laughs) and the prop that I'm so kicking myself that I didn't watch with you. Yes. I wanted I, to watch yeah, it I'm you surprised that, that you didn't I, watch I, it I was together. surprised too. I even offered. I know. I, I know. offered. I said, you know, you're going to want to watch. Blame Charlie. My dog. I offered. You, one of these days, let him run around in the yard. I'll just keep the cats inside. You can bring the dog. Yeah. You'd be like, our house <laughs> is a very, very, very fine house. Because <laughs> cats out in, not in the yard. <laughs> Podcasting ain't so hard. Right. And so. Because like I had the same experience. I thought this was the haunting for some reason. I was waiting for black and white. I was waiting for like those weird Dutch angles and that weird like when, you know, they put a mirror up to the thing and shake it a little bit to give it an old school (laughs) trickery. We got some of that, but I was not expecting that. And one thing that I keep forgetting and you might have to censor me on this one. The 70s were horny and I was not expecting. And you know what? It makes sense because like (laughs) First of all, the British um, back in the day, the very yes, yes, to upper lip. Let's be very um, more stifled in all the, the, the sexuality, and let's not hold all of this. Let's not hold all this public organ rubbish, right? But then you throw in, but then you see movies like Wicker Man and all these kind of things where it's like they're letting the genie out of the bottle with horror, and like, well, this took yeah, a turn at like the end where I was like, right? oh wow, huh? The seventy three was was I mean we had Night of the Living Dead sixty eight right that kind of like opened the door a crack but seventy three seventy four this is where we start getting 
The Wicker Man, The Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, Last House on the Left. I mean, yeah, you're, you're this is, you know, certainly tamer than some of those others. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is where everything 73, 74 is where everything kind of does a flip. And and old school horror, the old gothic horror becomes charming. And <laughs> you know, we've got we've got we've got sites that are waiting to show us, you know, in the upcoming years. So if you imagine like take this movie and put it in today's, you know, perspective, you just imagine the the crazy stuff. Well, actually, if you would have taken this and put it in the 1980s, oh yeah. 80s is when they did bad shit crazy stuff i mean imagine what they would have attempted to do in the 80s with this movie yeah and you know but this movie would have bored me to tears when i was 10 years old you know what i'm saying i'm glad i saw this movie now Mm -hmm. so i could actually appreciate it because i was just engulfed transfixed i was just with these characters their story where is this going because when i was 12 this is the 80s. I was looking for blood and gore and like quick kills and as many as possible. This takes its time. This is all about atmosphere and mood and just and then when it does take that like ribald switch, it goes from like Hammer House of Horror to like Hammer's Horny House, you know, and it's like <laughs> I was not ready for that. They straight up inspire a gag from both Temple of Doom and the naked gun. Yes. With the stone statue. I wrote that down too with the naked gun. But I will say this from the get go with this movie, from the production design to, to the costuming, there is not a square inch wasted in no. any shot of this movie. It's stunningly beautiful. Oh my God. I was transfixed. And from, I think it was like early on when, they're talking the, the millionaire is talking to the doctor and you get this extreme close up of the two faces. Yes. And I'm like, oh, that's a decision that is bold. And I'm let's let's go with this kind of and composition. The first time we see the house oh. of the sun of the dawn breaking through with the fog. And then I'm like, that is haunting and is beautiful. I would want to either buy that house or walk across the street away from that house. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot of artistic choices made because like when they introduce Rodney McDowell's character, you've got the car with the Barrett's coming up and, and you're kind of looking through the window of the car. Rodney McDowell is walking alongside the train station and it's early morning and several choices there set the tone very early on in this film. And even in the camera work, I don't remember if it was the very opening scene, but early on, a woman is sitting in the chair. I don't remember who, but the camera like swings around and down. I mean, it's very fluid and moves. There's a lot of of shots of the camera looking up, the super close up that you mentioned, odd angles. The camera spins one time. I mean, director John Huff, he did my favorite Hammer film, Twins of Evil, until I saw Plague of the Zombies, but one of my favorite Hammer films. And... I think he's done some other horror stuff. I just don't remember the artistry in those. I mean, no, this I mean, is something I, I really special. He did <laughs> Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. The reason he did that, I'm sure, was, and, and we'll get into it later, but it was, that was the only other film from Academy Pictures, which is produced by, or was produced by James Nicholson after he left 
American International Pictures. So I'm sure that was kind of a, hey, we've got you for this. We're going to give you this. Interestingly enough, though, he's got some Disney cred because he did Escape to Witch Mountain and mm-hmm. Return to Witch Mountain and Watcher in the Woods. And Watcher really? Is, I was on that Betty Davis train. <laughs> it's, been a long, <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen Watcher in the Woods, but I remember that there was some artistic choices made in that one. And certainly that was kind of during Disney's getting darker phase where, you know, the, the days of Snow White were behind them. They were trying to go more adult. Um, Watcher in the Woods, I know, had some technical problems with it and budgetary problems. But, um, yeah, it, interestingly, I you know, my memories of those other films, I don't remember the artistic choices that he made with this one. And maybe it's just... He had more creativity, um, you know, more flexibility to do these things with this movie. And maybe I don't miss some of his other films that aren't horror related. Maybe he attempted to do the same creative choices. We just haven't seen him. Well, I think it definitely starts. And if you look at the overall pedigree of this movie, it's incredible. I mean, it is intimidating because you have it's all starting with the writer. And obviously with the WGA writer strike, we understand the writer is like the bedrock of everything. And it's Matheson, Richard Matheson, like the wellspring of which genre floweth. Right. I mean, so much that we know comes from him. by him. You know I mean? Like, and the sci-fi element of this movie, especially like the computer. Whole- yes. Science versus spirituality. I'm not shocked. Like if Dr. Pretorius from either Bride of Frankenstein or from beyond took up residency in this house. And <laughs> when we get to the laundry list of perversions, see, that's the great thing I love about this script too. It's like, besides me wanting to shake the hell out of the, the science, the main scientist guy, because you've seen some <laughs> ill stuff, you know, the paranormal exists. You research it. It's your field, but yet you cannot believe what you're seeing. Okay. Anyway, besides that, because yeah, even said he, with a, one of his first lines when he uh, when she came down or she scared up, he's like, "Well, I say, you've caused us undue alarm," and I'm like, "You can't say, hey, how's it going? You caused us undue alarm." Instead, of like, "Ah, oh, you scared me." Oh, I say, but in fact, what went on in this house? What didn't go on in this house? And he goes on this laundry list. He goes, drug addiction alcoholism sadism bestiality mutilation murder vampirism necrophilia cannibalism and other sexual goodies it was the other sexual goodies <laughs> that got me and i was like oh it's gonna be this kind of movie they literally in their library have an autoerotic oh, phenomenon because they had all sorts of like you know um lady yeah. chatterley's lover they had like the big book of penthouse forms they <laughs> had like like kama sutra volume four they had like all sorts of stuff sexual encounters for brits from what i've read apparently they toned down yeah yeah the- i was gonna mention that has anyone read the book i have not it's and i've read that I'm more I, I'm more litter than literati, so <laughs> I, I want to read the book now. I'm kind of curious as to like you know, where things went. I, they, you know, going back to the the creativity and, and tying into the books, something that I I didn't catch, but I saw this and when I was looking up trivia for it. So the character of Anne, Anne Barrett, of course, Doctor Barrett's wife. She's 
clearly sexually repressed. She's got, <laughs> she's got some desires that aren't being met by the doctor. Not a surprise, since he's about as exciting as milk toast. You've you got milk toast credit. <laughs> so she's in bed reading a book. The name of the book is Sentimental Education by Gustav Flaubert. This novel is actually about sex and desire, apparently. So it was a creative choice to have her reading that book. And of course, the only ones who would really know, of course, if anyone is read up on Gustave Flaubert, whether she picked that up off the shelf, possibly, most likely, considering all the other books that are on the shelf, that first scene was really establishing the sexual repression. Both women in this movie are targeted by the spirit, the mental medium, Florence Tanner, She's targeted because of her naivete. She's got these gifts, but she's led down a different path. She's misled to misinterpret things that are happening. And she, at the beginning of the film, right, she's very confident. She she mm-hmm. has the answer, and she knows, and she's going to fix this, and that's going to be the end of that. And nope. <laughs> yeah, nope, not, not the case at all. Ben Fisher, Ronnie McDowell's character, who's a physical medium, he's the only one who has a clue as to what they're facing. He's been there. He's survived. And he's the one that kind of telling them, it's like, you're not doing this. You need to leave. No one listens to him. I had a question at first. I wondered, why go back? If he's the only survivor and he saw that everything, why in the world? But I, I've come to believe that he he needed to do that to reconcile his feelings well, or did i miss I something too i think i think you know oh that's true he mentioned yeah, 100,000 pounds in, yep. in 19 well first of all 100,000 pounds in 2023 money ain't nothing to scoff at sure let alone like the pound to dollar ratio i think it was like four to one at that time so that's 400 that's almost a half a million dollars i'll go spend that in a haunted house for half a million dollars and i don't even want to do that <laughs> so like no I get it. Plus, like, yeah, like you're saying, some sort of like survivor's guilt. Like the only way that he can actually overcome is is to actually overcome it again. Well, and Roddy McDowell's performance in this film, and it's one of those. Oh my lord! And it's it makes it's in how soft spoken he is, but it just makes me appreciate everything that he's in in the '80s that I love so much even more. But there's let's just say this: it's not only his performance but it's his tactile neck and it's the variety of his turtlenecks that he is rocking <laughs> throughout this film. But I love how the movie takes so many tonal shifts in it for, and, and depending on the, it, I mean, it all stays within the parameters of the story, but for example, it starts off like your basic haunting mm-hmm. and then it turns into like a ribald ghost story. And then later on, it almost turns into a paranormal uh, treasure of Sierra Madre because they're all standing in front of each other blaming each other and not trusting each other and you're doing this and you need to go but you need to stay no you need to go no you need to stay and then finally all the table flips and that makes even things worse you caused it no you did no you invited in and so then you already have all these and the 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 sad thing is they're all on the same team but they just have so many different opposing views that they can't connect there are a lot of little things that you might think is the focus uh, or the theme of what's happening. And it just very unexpectedly and very gingerly sort of they work all together 
for, you know, one overall purpose, but, you know, there's the identity of the ghost. Who is it? They're, then they think, well, maybe there's a controlled multiple haunting. Maybe it's more than <laughs> one ghost. Yep. Then they don't trust each other. And then the whole science. And I, I don't know. This is one scientist that I kind of can understand. I mean, the house is a giant battery. It's full of electromagnetic energy. And it's got to be tapped somehow or it's going to express itself. And it does it physically that when that scene, when they it made the ectoplasm coming out of her fingers. That, that was, was neat. Yeah. So, I mean, it's all these things. And, you know, I don't really know, sort of pick one that it's ultimately about. But I suppose it's the, like you said, the science versus the the supernatural. But it, all these little side things. I I think it's a lot more intricate probably than people would think. Oh, I guarantee Absolutely. you. Yeah, someone's probably written a dissertation based on this film. But one of the things, the little bits of levity that I got, and I'm not going to lie, it's a moment that literally made me like stand up and almost cheer in my house is I loved the style of the time and date stamps that we get throughout. Yeah. But they're always accompanied with this wong, wong every <laughs> time. And there's the moment, not necessarily a spoiler alert, when they think that. This house is clean. Blast. Yeah. And you see the time and date stamp and there's no music. And I saw it. I'm like, where's the stinger? And then let's just say something happens. And then the stinger comes back and you hear the wong, wong. And I laughed and I got up. I was like, yes, they understood. Like, oh, yeah, no, no, this house ain't clean. And this could be a Christmas movie. Yes, it could. Yeah, I oh don't yeah, think I did not take <laughs> note of that. Going well, we got a few more months till Christmas with the nerds. <laughs> so no. the, the the music score, the electronic score there, yeah, that was amazing. Delia or Delia Derbyshire and Brian Hodgson. Oddly enough, this soundtrack, I guess there's not much to it, but it's very effective. It, the score has never been released. The sound effects, the musical sound effects, give you that that sense of foreboding. And I thought that was genius the way they, they worked that in this movie. But a good score shouldn't like overpower the movie. Sure. You know, and that's yeah. what they did. It did let them, it let the atmosphere and it just enhanced it as opposed to like bombarding it with like big. <laughs> she literally, the one of the first lines when they walk into the house is she's like, the atmosphere in here. I mean, they are laying it out for you. Yeah, that Yes, this is the way it is set up the way it is. I will say, speaking of genius, the one thing I had to throw a text out to you was animal trauma, possibly alert, because as haunting and real and heady as a lot of the material is in this film, there's a moment that I figure either Fulci or Argento are a huge fan of because, okay, we do have her staying in the Suspiria suite. Room. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Like, sincerely, but the cat stuff and the lunacy of the cat stuff. That was my only, like, not beef, but I was like, okay, this t- took me out for the scene because, one, I, I don't, I'm real sensitive for cat yes, you are. drama. I'm a cat daddy. But, like, um, it was just cartoony and and puppety enough to you know that it wasn't real, and the fact it looked like someone was just throwing a puppet at her, and like I, it, it was charming, and it came and it gave me a giggle. But then the cat went and ran off. But then when the cat was in the shower, I was like, oh, poor kitty, he didn't do nothing. And then like 
He's there at the end, like, yay! I'm not trying to spoil it, no spoiler, but I'm like, yay, kitty! Right? So well, there's it, even a moment though where they show the door. Like, poor kitty. Like, poor kitty. Well, there's the moment though where you see the door and you literally see as a cat will do. Yeah, I cracked the up on paws my... under the door. And I'm like, don't close the door in front of the cat. It's not gonna stop anything. <laughs> the cat's car gonna go under there, or he's gonna claw the door until he's in there. You just, the only best thing is let the cat in, let the cat do what it wants to do. You can't stop a cat. But even the build up to that 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 shower scene, yeah. the way it's shot with the cool shadows and mm. the shadows like that shot of when she's reading the naughty bits in that book and the shadows start engaging shadows with start, each other, start, start going to town. And I was like, well, what kind of sculpture is this, man? This is I'm telling you, we're in the haunting of Summer Isle. Well, and then by the time we get where she's at the table and she's like this is where the debauchery occurred. Touch me or somebody else will, you bastard. I'm thinking whether or not you get a haunting or a hellraiser, this is how you get Cenobites. This is like rich white perverts with too much time on their hands. Right. And this is what happens. Dabbling in the black arts. And you see this other pleasure. Exactly. When you, you need to go beyond the moral realm of pleasure, that's when you get Cenobites. And you know, it's even more because it's like, there was a cat. First of all, so I'm sitting there waiting. She's like, "Why don't you make love to me?" And things are going on. Meanwhile, the she the the, the wife is downstairs being sexually repressed, telling people to touch her. Things are going on. The like, auto erotic asphyxiation. There's nudity things going on. I'm like rated PG. PG, right? <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like from the makers of Romeo and Juliet or something. Because my goodness, I was not expecting like this. You don't expect that in like PG 70s, but I mean, I guess pre code. This movie was way more than what I was expecting. It, I, I went on a ride with this film. And See, I, I love that's one thing with, with older movies. We tend to forget like 70s and 80s. So the rating system is vastly different mm -hmm. than what it is now. You get you could get nudity. You know, you can get sometimes a lot of nudity in PG films where now, I mean, oddly enough, it seems like we get more sexually repressed in many ways. When it comes, because you know, heaven forbid, right. you know, hint of nipple, am R rating. I was like, no, you can practically get that in a G movie back in the day. Right. I mean, there was a line. He yells. Rodney McDowell yells at the ghost. Your mom was a bitch. I mean, he yells that to the go PG, and I'm like, oh my <laughs> goodness, I was not expecting that to. <laughs> First of all, if you're going to insult a ghost and anger a ghost, I guess that will work, because like. That would make me angry. I mean, I'd probably come back from the dead if someone started talking smack on my mama. So, <laughs> but he just comes out and like husses everybody, and she's over there pretending she's Susan Day George, yelling bastards at everybody. I loved this movie. You've got the character of, I mean, not really a character per se, but we 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 are constantly hearing about Belasco. Belasco. Yeah. So Belasco. Supposedly, uh, when Richard Matheson was writing this book, he was basically basing the character Belasco loosely on Alistair Crowley. Okay, I can uh, see which that. You kind of see that. Now, I've never heard of the sexual side of Alistair Crowley, but I've always heard of the occult side. I don't know if, if either, any of you guys have, have ever heard of, of. I mean, I know that Alistair Crowley was kind of a he was a, he, he was a, a warped dude at especially in later years. And I know that, you know, the occult though was his main thing. I'd never heard of the, the debauchery side of it. That may have been. I thought you were going to say the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> right. 
Well, I was going to say, Alistair Crowley is probably down with the get down because if anything we've seen about like Satanisms and, the 70s. and witches in the 70s and stuff, They're it's full on. I mean, it's ready to go. In the front of exactly. the Satanic Temple. They're down for whatever. Satan swingers looking for sex and kicks any way they can. You know? So I, I just mean, assume, in fact, anytime yeah. Satan is introduced and I don't there's see unity. Old a naked, naked old, old person, people. yes, exactly. There's not, if there's any Satanisms and cults, there has to be naked it's old basically people. when you came across like real sex late at night and you're like oh um, and you're just like damn man, man. see this wasn't as cool as it was in the brochure satan you know so like <laughs> i need to get read look at my contract but no it's belasco and like when they thought he was belasco and i was like is that the ghost of rickety cricket because they had those like like polio things on there see. yes i saw those and then i'm like was he like the elephant man too because he was deformed because they're like he was a monster of a man and the fact that he cut off his own well not spoilers but like like i don't know belasco is an interesting ghost he was a he was casper the horny ghost and casper the petty ghost and the fact that this is all built around a napoleon complex a huge napoleon complex and i don't want to say how the movie ends but i'm not saying it ends with someone doing a lot of hating on someone and that's what i was just saying bg oh shit sorry i had to go take a bitch and i'm like god damn roddy (laughs) i'm sorry I'm like, dang, Roddy McDowell, (laughs) you're going to town on the guy. Your mom was a bitch. Your dad was an asshole. And I'm like, you're because nobody likes you and you're short and you stink. And I'm like, is that the way to get rid of ghosts? Is just berated, you know, because I know it works. You could be an exorcist. I could be a ghost. I'll be a total exorcist. You don't know shit. And I'll just go around and like your mom was an elderberry or whatever it is. And just go around and like clowning ghosts. You know, I would do that. I would be ghost clowners. This is what happens when I have to go for a pee break, man. I think I missed everything that happened there. My goodness. Who are you going to call? Not genius. You know, <laughs> so like, <laughs> no, if that's what it takes, I, you know what? And I get Zelda Rubenstein to be my hype man because if she can bless this house and then and 10 talk smack, can you imagine some of the and what she would have a potty mouth on her? Mm-hmm. And like, it would just be like, let me tell you about your mother and just like, beep, beep, beep. <laughs> you know, and I was like, you need more nutrients if you're going to battle this. I'm the queen up in this piece. This, these rhymes are blessed. You know, and then she's just going off, clowning on ghosts, and I would love it. I would love it. Then he could team up with what did we say the other day? Oh yeah, the the Reverend from Poltergeist, Horton Heat. Anyway. <laughs> don't, don't bring those tangents into a good established but it's Tangia. we gotta bring in t- tangents for Tangia. <laughs> i want to tell you the the part that held me up the first time i saw it and that was the machine and I, yes. the first the first time i saw it you know it's this like rich set design and production design and all that and then this cold stark machine sitting in the middle of the floor. Very simple. I mean, you know, you see computers in 60s and 70s movies and they're pulling in and out cards, you know, and stuff like that. But that just threw me at like, it didn't seem like it belonged to me. What did it? And the second time was fine. It was like, I, I envisioned it in this giant cavern of a room and this machine's there taking up about a fourth of the screen, but it's not really like that. It's It was better the next time I watched it. Anyone have any feelings about the machine? 
it seemed off because you're in this big gothic setting and then you have this yeah. computer like something straight out of a bird eye gordon movie <laughs> it says u.s army on the bottom of it and they're over there like twiddling knobs and the fact that even when she smashed it he's like she didn't even know what to hit you know and i'm like well of course because it's like you got a big monstrosity it's all casing basically and i would say this even though it definitely was out of place there were still several shots carefully composed where it is established that it's and weird. they're working around yeah it's do you think it's meant to be like a science versus a supernatural? Oh, absolutely. There's but a total dichotomy there. It's a science for the supernatural. Yeah. That's what I don't get. Like the home professor is like his own thesis is to disprove himself. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. That's a tough dissertation to you know prove what I'm or saying? disprove. Because he believes in ghosts yeah. and the supernatural. However, but he's there like, well, fuck it. I can just, I mean, just do hell with it. I can just like zap him out. Well, of this existence. is why I, when I was watching this, I was like, you know what I would really like to watch as a double feature with this? Prince of Darkness. That would work good. As you have an interesting dichotomy. Between science versus supernatural. But spiritualism. Yeah. Like the snake eating itself. Yeah. You know, and, but granted, Carpenter doesn't get as um horny. Yeah, as he does in this. I was like, oh, we love the poltergeist daughter. You know, because like she well, comes out. I'll tell you what, honestly, and I don't know, I'm gonna get creeps and nostalgia, no, no. but too late. Oh, no. There's something about 70s British birds, and especially when she's coming down off the staircase in that nightgown and she's got that light siluing at again. The director's making some choices. And them's the right ones. Was like <laughs> that was a great shot. It was gorgeous. It was haunting and gorgeous because she looked ethereal yeah. and she looked dangerous, ocean. but also like not a deal breaker. So like that's why like I was like, okay. Well, there's also a moment, and this is where you talk about like 1973, another time, another place warning that I have only watched the entity. One oh time. my goodness i was not expecting like ghost diddling no i was not and i'm gonna throw it out to the she audience for him. was it consensual absolutely was consensual it seemed like it was based on because she invited she goes take me yeah. use my body to live but yeah yeah she did I, carla asked me she kind of looked at me you know when that scene was going on she's like you know is, is what's going on think oh what's going on? yeah that's that's what you see is what you get yeah, she's she's uh she's having a little bit of fun there. This was girls yeah. to do it with Burke Derrick. Yeah, no, what it was is Revenge of the Nerds because it was under false pretenses. Because I don't want to he thought he was Daniel. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's that's true. It was consensual on her side, but under false pretenses. Yeah, so call the ghost cops on that. Yes, one. we do, and that's what it it affected me because I'm with my dog by myself, and when that moment happened. Again, I wish but I was she didn't know like, holy what she didn't know because I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. And she didn't know it wasn't Daniel until everything. Now that you brought it up, I'm like, oh, it wasn't cool. But at the time, she didn't know. So at the time, not saying it was I'm not I know I know defending I know. the Belasco, the ghost diddler <laughs> at any pay weight, but this, you know, <laughs> no, I understand. Again, she was under fall. That's messed up. It's really messed up. Yeah, he needs to get busted. I need. I should go. I should go. Your mother was a whore, you know, and just like start <laughs> clowning him or something. Well, and then another one that I actually got a good vibe of was like Thirteen Ghosts in the way lead is used and how that's incorporated with the science. Oh, yeah. Use the lead proof room like he's Superman or something. And that is whole, the ghost of Christopher Reeves. Well, and that then even that whole reveal 
of which I did not see coming. And I will say this as someone that wasn't well versed on Michael Gao. I'm like, hey, that's that's Alfred. Like he got into some weird stuff before he moved in with the Waynes, apparently. Wait, <laughs> that's that's Alfred from the Batman. scientist, the 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 Belcalso guy. That was Alfred. Yeah, at the very end, the pervert. <laughs> well, to specify which Alfred, uh, uh, the the Alfred the first from, born Batman from the Batman. Yeah, from eighty nine Batman. Okay, yeah. very good. Yeah, yeah, Michael I, Keaton. yeah, that's right. There's your gazpacho, Mister Wayne. Oh. If you'll excuse me, I have things to do. But he was actually an old coming to Wayne Manor. He uh, was an opposite Keaton. He was also opposite Val Kilmer and yes, yep, and George Clooney. So he was on all four. Mm-hmm. And so that guarantee you, then there's a generation of kids that might just reverse engineer somehow with wholesome Alfred into horny Belasco. Holy moly. Yeah. That's a journey to take. I, I have to, this, is, this gives me my opportunity. You've opened up the door to, to talk about my first doctor who reference. If anyone who listens to the show knows I, I've got to jump those chances. So Michael, Michael uh, Goff, I think is how it's like officially pronounced over in England. He's got some legit horror cred though. Besides Batman, he was in Conga, Black Zoo, Horrors of the Black Museum, Horror of Dracula. He was also in Doctor Who, classic Doctor Who. He uh, was in 1980s story called Arc of Infinity opposite the uh, Fifth Doctor. But he was also in a 1960s story called The Celestial Toy Maker, where he plays this kind of uh, mastermind of like an alternate dimension. And he plays opposite the first Dr. William Hartnell, who's, who basically he's setting him up in all these games where, you know, childish games, but with deadly consequences. Mm-hmm. And The Celestial Toy Maker is one of the most popular characters in Doctor Who, but they've never done another story with him. In the 80s, this would have been a few years before Batman, they had finally written a sequel, and it was called The Nightmare Affair. And it was going to be in, I'm trying to remember the time time frame, like 85, I think it was. And it was opposite the sixth Doctor, Colin Baker. They had the script written up, and then they put the show on hiatus for like a year and a half. And when the show came back, they decided to basically throw away all the scripts that they had ready to go and go a whole different route. And so we never got to see that story. And there's mixed versions, depending on who you're talking to, whether or not he was going to come back as the the toy maker or not. Of course, he since passed, so that opportunity is gone. But supposedly they're bringing the toy maker back this year for the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. And he's going to be played by Neil Patrick Harris. Oh, so uh. I don't know. I don't see those those two actors in the same realm. But nonetheless, that's my Doctor Who side sidetrack. I got to do that. So. Well, and while we're there, are there any Star Trek references? Uh, uh, there are actually. Let's go through the cast real quick since we're here. Sure. We've been talking to Roddy McDowell. He played Ben Fisher. Lots of horror cred there. I mean, 270 credits. He was in four of the five theatrical Planet of the Apes movies. He was in the TV series for Planet of the Apes. He was in the Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock. We mentioned Batman. He was in Night Gallery, Poseidon Adventure, which we've done on this show. Um, He was in The Black Hole as a voice of Vincent, the robot. He was, of course, in Fright Night 1 and 2. And interestingly enough, he was in a series that our uh, friend Jonathan was talking about the other day. The you and I, Jeff, the Fantastic Journey, 1977 
TV series that went for eight episodes actually featured Artie McDowell. Um, physicist Dr. Barrett, played by Clyde Revel, um, or is it Revel? 199 credits. Uh, it's it, weird credits. Actually, he was in Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Star Trek reference. He was in Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, episode Cupid, where he played Sir Guy of Gisborne. Uh, it was a Robin Hood uh, episode, so to speak. He was also the original voice of the Emperor in the very first version of Empire Strikes Back. Hmm. Huh. Before it got yeah retroed and and he got you know kicked to the curb. Uh, lots of TV and voice work. Still alive, I believe. Still doing voice work. Uh, Pamela Franklin. Played- oh, I don't want to interrupt you, but I I, I want to say that each of these cast members has some good horror thriller cred. I know you usually do the cast, but I've sort of made a note of my favorite genre film that they've been in. And if you say it, I'm not going to repeat it, but you did not mention for Clive Revel, Bunny Lake is Missing, which is a great film. I've never seen that film. I've been aware of it, but never seen it. Let's see if you get the one for Gail Honeycutt. I probably not actually. So um, Pamela Franklin first with mental medium, uh, Florence Tanner. She was in a movie we just covered on the show, the food of the gods. She was in the innocence, which is a, a great creepy thriller from 63, 61, 62, early sixties. She was in the hammer film, the nanny. She was in necromancy, which we also talked about in our recent bird eye Gordon episode. Yes. Mr. Big. She's also in Satan's School for Girls, one of our worst episodes we ever did, (laughs) Uh, as well as The Six Million Dollar Man. Okay, Gail Honeycutt played Ann Barrett. Lots of TV work. Jeff and I, back in the day, we would freely admit that we were fans of Dallas. She was in 13 episodes as Vanessa Beaumont, the mother of JR's bastard son, James Richard Beaumont. I did not catch what horror movie she was in, though. What was she in? Eye of the Cat. Hey, Honeycutt was in an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Ah, cool. I missed yeah. that as well. Uh, we mentioned Richard Matheson. I don't think we really need to say what he's mm-hmm. done. This was based on his 1971 novel, Hell House, which does have some similarities to the uh, book by Shirley Jackson called The Haunting of Hill House mm-hmm. that the movie The Haunting was based on. Similarities, but some pretty big differences as well. But definitely, as as Jeff and I were talking about, I, I think Richard Matheson and, and Shirley Jackson may have had a cup of tea somewhere along the way to compare notes because there's uh, there's some strong similarities between these two films. And oh yes, my Star Trek reference. He wrote "The Enemy Within," one of the earliest episodes of Classic Trek, the one where Captain Kirk gets split into to two, the good Kirk and the bad Kirk. He also directed 16 episodes of The Twilight Zone, including Nick of Time and Nightmare in 20,000 Feet, which star William Shatner, who played Captain Kirk in Star Trek. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> All right, guys, did we uh, miss anybody? Did you got any comments on any of the other stars? He wrote Jaws 3. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> which, listen... I have, I like we Jaws both have 3. a very like soft Jaws spot for Jaws 3, without a doubt. No, this was, like I said, I wasn't properly prepared for what the film was, but everything that the film was, it works. And so that again, well. yeah, this is one of those that, again, I understand 
when people put together like a list of their top haunted house films, how this is like number one. I get it. This would be a good date movie for someone who doesn't like necessarily oh, I don't like horror. Well, watch this. Or like, oh, I don't like goats and gore and jump scares. Well, watch this, you know? And like, so like, this is one of those all purpose movies. It's also like, watch this. You know? <laughs> so like, you'll do a little peripheral viewing when you're watching with, with someone for the first time. Just make sure your or library those- doesn't have like erotica, like on the shelf. <laughs> don't be a, don't be a Belasco. <laughs> well, there is so much that we could talk about this, but they just played the the show will start in five minutes. So Ooh. we we need to wrap up. Are you guys going to stay and watch Rosemary's Baby? Uh, well, okay. what, as long as there's not something wrong with my eyes. <laughs> I have to ask, we, we asked which movie you wanted to watch and you chose this one. I, I shouldn't be surprised, but I was a little surprised. Why did you choose this over Rosemary's Baby? Number one, it was going to be a first time viewing for both of us. Mm-hmm. So we're always okay. open to those new experiences. Number two, we're a thing of positivity. The elephant in the room. So there's always that with, you know, Polanski, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Too. And I honestly, I just watched Repulsion for the first mm-hmm. time last year at the Stray Cat Theater on 16 millimeter, no doubt. And it was incredible. It was amazing. But it was one of those things they said, hey, you know, we understand baggage you bring with this particular director. But yeah. You know that was probably the main. But reason. if we get a chance to talk about a new movie that we haven't seen that we want to see, yeah. then yeah, it's all about it. And no, this is this was great. <laughs> I was not expecting how engaged and engrossed I was. We say that there's adult movies, and we don't mean like beaded curtain style adults, <laughs> but we you have to have some of that baggage that comes with life to really appreciate the scares and the atmosphere for it. And so, like, this is one of those perfect adult horror movies i think a good double feature for this to play with it would be the changeling another supernatural horror that is very adult but also is very impactful and delivers what it promises what's the password you're a changeling (laughs) you're a no good changeling (laughs) made my toes curl how scared scary that movie was i think all four of us give this one a a two thumbs up I do want to run to the restroom and get another box of popcorn before the movie starts. But Greg and Genius, you you told us what you do in general. Anything specific? Ideally, in the month of July, we're doing something different. We're actually doing what are we calling it? We're calling it the dog days of summer. We try to we try to theme months when we can. So that one like keeps us disciplined. Yep. So we're doing all like dog horror movies, but not the ones you would expect. Oh. That's just I, are you going to do man's best friend? That's okay. Maybe we are doing one. That was just the most obscure one I could think of. When you do that, you do it a special shout out for Ali Sheedy. Oh, yeah, we would I def- still say Ali Sheedy got done dirty in uh, Breakfast Club because she was great the way she was before. She got done dirty in Short Circuit as well, my friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, throughout the filmography. No, but yeah, we will be delving into dog based horror in the month of July and lately. Lay- we are both animal lovers, so and we're it's going to crypt- be interesting. Yeah, and we're a Crypticon, and we'll be, uh, yeah, come say hello to us. We'll be out there. I'll be out there with the Kansas City Horror Club, and uh, come see us every Friday night uh, at yep. Screenline Armor. Hear us every Friday night wherever your fr- favorite podcasts are played at Nightmare Junkhead. Um, you can find us on the Twitterverse at Nightmare Junk at Twitter or EL underscore genius with the J. That's me. Uh, we're on the Facebooks. Um, yeah, wherever your favorite podcasts are played and wherever there's shenanigans are abound in Kansas City, you'll probably find us. Look at you all so social media sh- uh, savvy. I'm impressed, man. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thank you again. Thanks for knocking on our window. It was great to have you. Come on, Greg. Let's go to the lobby and get (laughs) ourselves a treat. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Jim Rex. What's Jim Rex? Would you believe a movie audience guide presented as a public service by this theater's management to help you select your motion picture entertainment? Well, that's what it is. And we urge you to learn these rating symbols and use them as a guide for you and your family. G means suggested for general audiences, all ages. M, suggested for mature audiences, parental discretion advised. R, restricted, persons under 16 not admitted unless accompanied by parent or adult guardian. X, persons under 18 will not be admitted. This seal in advertising indicates that the film was approved under the motion picture code of self-regulation. starts in one minute. presents Mia Farrow in a William Castle production, Rosemary's Baby, co-starring John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, Sidney Blackmer, Morris Evans, and Ralph Bellamy, written for the screen and directed by Roman Polanski, from the best-selling novel by Ira Levin, suggested for mature audiences.
Uh, Richard, I can't tell you how much fun it was to run into those two guys. I rarely experience the belly laughs and enjoyment that I do when podcasting with them. And I'm so appreciative that they would come on the episode. And I'm so thrilled that they really, really liked the movie. You probably hear my chuckling voice out the whole thing. It's kind of hard not to. They bring a very infectious energy into the show. We always have such fun on their show. They did not disappoint. Our second film this week is Rosemary's Baby. And both Jeff and I feel the need to talk about screenplay writer and director Roman Polanski. We've chosen to focus our attention on the film itself, and we will not be discussing the director and our upcoming review. Rosemary's Baby premiered in New York City on June 12th, 1968. It was based on a novel called Rosemary's Baby by Ira Levin, and it stars Mia Farrow, John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, Sidney Blackmer, Maurice Evans, Ralph Bellamy, on and on and on. One of the interesting things about this is that it was a William Castle production released by Paramount Pictures. I'm sure we're going to talk about that as well. But first of all, just overall, what's your history with seeing Rosemary's Baby and how did you like it? I think this is my third time seeing this film. It's not necessarily a go-to for me, but I do enjoy it every time I see it. But there are long gaps between viewings for me. I want to say I saw this for the first time maybe late 80s. I think I was working at the video store. The second time was probably 20 years ago, which sounds crazy, but 15, 20 years ago is when I would have bought the DVD. It is a harder film to find, believe it or not, in the streaming world. It is um, streaming on something called Hoopla. You can rent it on Amazon, uh, and that's it in the streaming world. It's it's not in a lot of places. It, there is the remake of Rosemary's Baby, so if you find it out there and say, hey, Rosemary's Baby is streaming here, yeah, it's probably the modern version. The Blu-ray is relatively cheap. It's from Paramount. You get it for less than $15. It's almost worth just adding it to your collection rather than trying to rent it. On this viewing, I will say because it's only my third viewing, I enjoyed it. And in a lot of ways, it was almost like a first time viewing. I remembered parts of it, other parts I didn't. And it really kept me engrossed. And, and it, it was just as entertaining as it has been the first few times I've seen it. I know some people are thinking, you've only seen this three times. Yeah, it's it's not a go-to for me, but I enjoy it every time I watch it. I love the cast. It's always fun watching all these different people pop up. I kind of like the time period setting, late 60s. I liked the setting in the big city. Of course, you know, this is supposed to be in New York, and it's at a building called the Bramford Building, which is not a real building, but was actually the Dakota, which was a other famous apartment building. This was, what, 1968 when this movie was made. Later on in the 1970s, it would become home to John Lennon, and unfortunately was the site of his murder in 1980. I also really kind of appreciated the little black and white TV in the corner. He's sitting on a little chair. I thought that was that was a lot of fun. What about you? I had seen it before, that is for sure, but I could not tell you when or where. I don't think I've seen it very many times. It is also on Blu-ray from Criterion, and I do have that. Even if I didn't like it, I think I would own this movie because it is such a monumental 
movie in the history of horror. Influential, I guess, is, is a better word. Luckily, though, I adore the movie. And it's one, again, I don't go to it like you. I don't know. It's one of those movies I see the time. Ugh, that's almost two and a half hours. That's pitiful that I now treat that as a time commitment and avoid a movie because of that. I wish that I didn't do that, but hey, it happens. Two hours and 17 minutes well spent. It is not slow at all. No. Uh, there are a lot of little scenes and the time between the scenes passes pretty quickly. So it's not boring or slow at all. And just the consistent feeling of unease is just classic and it's scary and I love it. It's a well-made film. It really is. And I think, you know, William Castle <clears throat> was the one that essentially discovered Rosemary's Baby, right? He had read the book as uh, written by Ira Levin, and he was the one that wanted to adapt it, and he wanted to direct it. He had been producing and directing his films. He had a string of successes and films that certainly stand the test of time, as we talked about a few months ago in our William Castle episode, but he wasn't necessarily considered A-list, and he really wanted to elevate himself to do kind of a big production. And the studio came in and said, nope, not going to do that. We want you to produce it, but we want to give this to Roman Polanski. I'm not sure William Castle would have been up to the challenge of doing this film. Had he done the film, it would have had a very, very different feel to it. This is a kind of a cutting edge film in a lot of ways. If you think about other horror movies from this time period, I think William Castle wouldn't have been as cutting edge in his approach. Unfortunately, we'll never know. That's kind of a what if multiverse Thing. Somewhere out there, there's a William Castle version of Rosemary's Baby. I think it'd be vastly different than what we've seen. This was probably his highest profile film as a producer. When we talked about William Castle, and of course we mentioned that he produced Rosemary's Baby, I guess we were looking at him more as a director, and I kind of thought, oh, so what? He produced it. But I tell you what, when it opened, and the first thing you see are a William Castle production with his name written in cursive in pink, yeah, I just felt good all over. And then, of course, his cameo later in the movie, which I knew it was coming, but I forgot. And when he stands outside that phone booth and his back is turned, I thought it was the, the character, the doctor, that had come out to get Rosemary when she was in the phone booth. And so I was genuinely surprised when he turned around and, oh, yeah, there's his cameo with his cigar. Cool cameo. It wasn't a speaking line, but it was definitely, I'm William Castle as he steps into the phone booth. I really have no nitpicks or complaints about this, but I do have a couple things I want to discuss just as plot points and what they mean and how did you interpret it. If you don't know, Rosemary's Baby is about a young couple that moves into this building and they have neighbors that they become friendly with who it turns out, I guess, no secret to say they're Satan worshipers. The building, to me, it was interesting when they go in, it's in disrepair. The tiles in the hallway are coming up. It looks like it needs paint. Yeah. I don't think they really went anywhere with it, but I just kind of made a connection between them arriving at that hotel. And then I think here and there throughout, you kind of see them sprucing it up a little maybe here and there. I took that as representing like, bringing new life to this building with their youth. And, you know, regardless of what happens to them, 
that their being there, you know, affects the building in plot points and possibly physically. I didn't see that, which you described definitely giving me a burnt offerings vibe. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Their apartment obviously goes through a massive reformation, but that's also because the previous tenant had been there for a long period of time. They obviously were putting their touches on it. You've got Mr. Nicholas, Alicia Cook Jr., wonderful character actor. He mentions that, well, that they would charge more if they could. Part of that, I guess, had to do at the time there was there was still rent control in New York City. You're absolutely right. And I didn't really think of that. I jumped ahead many years to all the movies we've seen where they can't sell a house because someone died in it. Yeah. And so I kind of take him saying they couldn't ask more for it because someone died in it. It's not a secret. They know that. Yeah. And that doesn't really even play into the story. How did they afford this apartment? She doesn't work and he's doing like, you know, Honda commercials or whatever. He's doing car commercials. And yes, he had been in two plays. And I guess the book expands a little bit on the fact that he was actually had done some other television work and he actually had a part in the daytime soap opera, Another World. So he had a steady amount of income coming in. The book also kind of expands a little bit on the fact that he begins to have success because of, it was spoiler alert, the deal that he makes with the cast of Ets, which means now he's making more money, which now he can afford this apartment that he might not have really been able to afford much before, basically made a deal with the devil. He's getting something out of it and, well... The devil's getting something out of it. Do you think that Alicia Cook Jr. knew what was going on in the hotel? I Or hotel, in the building? I don't think he did. I don't think that he did. He always looks guilty in anything. <laughs> he, does. he always just looks the part. The other thing I want to talk about related to that, I'm trying to make more out of this, I guess. It's kind of like, what else can you say about Rosemary's Baby? I'm thinking of all these things, but... How soon do you think her husband knew what was going on? I thought it would have been interesting if he knew, like had met them before they even moved in and he was actually moving them in because it was all part of the setup. I don't think that's what happened. It's maybe hard to pinpoint when exactly he became part of the deal because those scenes are so short and there's not any gap in between. I think he had no clue. He didn't want to go do the dinner thing, right? Right. But then he meets them. They're charming, quirky. When Rosemary's in the kitchen with Minnie, Guy is in the, the living room, whatever, with Roman, and they're smoking cigars or whatever. Because Rosemary kind of goes in, and she, you don't see anything, right? But you see kind of the, the smoke, and you have, there's obviously conversation. And then, like, in the next scene, he's acting different. Yeah, he's I, like, I, I want to go back and hear their stories. Yeah, I think that's the moment where Roman presented this idea. And Guy, you know, I mean, there's no way to look at it other than Guy's a creep, right? Sure. Yeah, I'll get what I want. I, I get all this fame and fortune. Yeah, go ahead. Have Satan have some fun with my wife. And he's I mean, not going to hurt her. Not going to hurt her. He just wants the baby. Go ahead. We'll have everything we want. He's a jerk. <laughs> and that's that's being polite. 
Yeah. So I'd like to think during that smoky conversation, he mentioned it. And so maybe he was intrigued and he thought about it. And then the next day he wanted to go back and hear more. But it was that night, that second night, I think, that he sealed the deal. I could see that. Yeah, I don't think the deal was sealed the first night, but I think the the groundwork was laid. Like, yeah. Is there also idea. not a hint that maybe he was not coerced, but maybe a little bit of magical spell cast on him to get him to do that? There could be. I mean, that's kind of a gray area because you really didn't, without yeah. seeing that conversation, without knowing yeah. what was said. And it, that's, it could be the one of the things that's intriguing about it. Yeah. How much do you think he really loves Rosemary? That first time when they move into the apartment and they're sitting on a shelf from the closet as and using it as a table while they eat takeout food. And she says, let's make love. Yeah. That's the most unromantic scene for uncomfortable minutes they each try to undress on their own he can barely get his pants off his legs in the air it's like okay this is a chore we got to do it i'm not real excited about it but then we'll be done yeah john cassavetes is good i guess he's so ambiguous you can't tell because he kind of plays it level Um, i think that was probably intentional yeah probably Um, probably yeah in the beginning i think there was love for rosemary but I don't think that he loved her enough, essentially, because he is willing to essentially sell his soul to the devil and sell her body to the devil in order to get what he wants. If he truly loved Rosemary, he wouldn't have given a damn about his career, wouldn't have made that deal. And even though he could sit there and say, I'm doing it for us, baby, you know, all you got to do is just go off and have sex for a little bit. And then the rest of our life, we'll be able to have everyone... No, he's doing it for himself. He's self-centered. He wanted the fame and fortune. I never got the feeling that she wanted that. There's no concern for Rosemary at any point. He doesn't give a damn about any pain that she's going through. He just wants her to fulfill the obligation because he's already got what he wants. And he wants to make sure he keeps getting what he wants. There's no sympathy for me and a guy. Guy's a jerk. One thing I meant when I said he it was a little uneven is... Sure, he gets impatient with her at times, but that's consistent throughout. It's not like he has a peak, but yet Rosemary notices something's wrong and is like, why don't you look at me anymore? So this is one of those cases where we are relying on the character to tell us that that's what's happening. I didn't feel like I actually saw him treat her any differently from beginning to end. No, there was no change, really. Two people in love, they would have like gone after each other on the table the, the egg rolls would have gone flying, whatever they were eating, you know, and then we'd be having some hot, heavy, you know, lovemaking session while the little black and white TV was going off in the background. We know they want to have a baby. That's mentioned early on. I don't know how enthusiastic he seems about that. I, I got the impression, though, they were he was on board with it. They both wanted to have a baby. But at the point when he finally says, let's make a baby, he's acting like that's a turn in his yeah. I get the gist that she had been maybe wanting it and he'd been saying, well, maybe we need to wait. I need to get success and this and that. You know, now all of a sudden it's like, hey, we need to make a baby. Beelzebub over here says <laughs> we, we, we got a timetable to keep. These are all part of the things that I think make it such a brilliant movie is that it doesn't tell us in black and white. It gives us things to think about. And yeah, that's that's a really good point, because something that I read is that in the book, apparently it's a fairly straightforward adaptation. 
Ira Levin has stated that it was the most literal adaptation of a book that Hollywood ever produced. And William Castle apparently stated that he felt that was because it was the first time that Polanski had done a, an adaptation of somebody else's work and didn't understand that he could change everything if he wanted yeah. to. You know, there are certainly some differences in the book, some things that were <laughs> kind of toned down a little bit. The ending of the book states, well, that's what happened to Rosemary. Or did it? Apparently, Ira Levin's approach was like, did it really happen or was it all in Rosemary's mind? I mean, at the end of the movie, things are pretty well presented in a black and white way. But you never do see the baby. You know, you see the eyes. And some people think, well, you know, that that must be the baby's eyes. Well, no, that was implied. I, I thought that that was the devil's eyes. But we never see the baby. We know there's no, you know, claws coming out. It's not, it's alive, jumping out of the bassinet. I wasn't aware of that. And I never for once thought this didn't really happen. However, you could make a case that it was all in her head because of those dreams she had. Those dreams were wacky. That's the first time you hear Minnie and Roman next door, right? You're hearing a conversation and she's kind of like, awake, but kind of like your question is like, maybe it's a bit of a dream state. She's hearing this conversation on the other side of the wall. And I personally had a hard time listening to what the conversation was about. Did you pick up any? No. And I always thought she was just yelling at her husband for something. (laughs) I read that some of the dialogue was actually kind of a precursor then to what happens to the character of Terry. Mm. Which I've questioned, like with with Terry, you know, Rosemary meets her in the basement doing laundry. Meets her in the basement in the laundry, and she is staying with the cast castavets, and she ends up supposedly committing suicide. She talks about that she was, you know, had some hard times living on the street, but she's got the the necklace. And to me, it made me wonder: was Terry the original choice? Were they I wondered that too. Already, kind of. Is setting her up, and maybe Terry found out, or maybe she was a bit more coherent and ends up saying, No, this isn't going to happen, and then ends up committing suicide. Because I guess in the dialogue, uh, Minnie says something about, You know, I told you she wasn't going to be on board with this, made it sound like Roman had, had been saying, Hey, let's let's do this, she'll be on board with it, and Minnie was against it, but went ahead and went with it. And then Terry finds out, hey, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> Are you on board? And then Terry's like, no. And I, the question is, did Terry commit suicide or was she murdered? I feel personally she was murdered. Roman and Minnie had gone when it happened, so they set up their alibi. But maybe through whatever, witchcraftery or whatever, maybe Terry was coerced somehow. First of all, the timeline, it makes sense that, yes, she was originally supposed to be because that happens before. In fact, when her body's on the ground is when Rosemary and her husband first meet the cast of that. That fits perfectly. I think about Minnie's reaction, though, with the body on the ground. And it it makes me think she truly was surprised because she's like, no, that couldn't have happened. So that makes me think that maybe she did commit suicide rather than be coerced to walk out the window. See, I got the feeling 
in that scene that she was faking all that. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was me. I mean, I kind of felt like I knew that they were involved, but in that particular scene, I was like, I was paying attention to what she was saying. And it, to me, it felt staged a little bit. Yeah. But when Rosemary says, well, you know, she did have a brother. I think that caught them off guard. Maybe she hadn't mentioned that. Mm, yeah. Because they did say, well, she'd never mentioned that before. Maybe they were gone, but maybe some of the other part of the coven or whatever we want to call it were involved in her death and by them being there. But the castle. Well, or they can do things remotely because as yes. far as we know, they didn't have contact with the actor or with uh, Maurice Evans later on. Their bosses have allowed them to work remotely. Yes. Yes. Listen to that, people. And look how well it turned out for the most part. Going back to the book, the parts you mentioned, I don't know. It's always, what is this movie really about? And what we've said about the book so far makes me think, okay, it's about pregnancy and the the terror of being pregnant and what's going to happen. Is your baby going to be safe and healthy? And what if it's not? And sort of the effect it has on the mother. That sort of makes sense with that ambiguous ending that you mentioned. However, I've read several places that the movie is about rape. And I've never really thought of that. Of course, that is what happens. She's raped by the devil. And we see that. To me, though, that's not what the movie's about. I don't agree with that. Yeah. Since we brought up Maurice Evans and his character, Hutch, this is a part I had kind of forgotten was his part in in the movie. Did at any time you think maybe he was involved as well? I was trying to remember. Yeah, I, there was a, I had some questions early on. I was like, well, is he involved? Is he not involved? But then the, the one scene where he starts questioning, like, what is, what's this necklace that you've got? Mm-hmm. Then at that point, I was like, no, nah, he's not involved in it. But yeah, there was a little bit early on that, well, maybe he's involved. Maybe he isn't. I couldn't remember. I do like the scene, though, right, where he's talking about the Bramford building and he talks about the Trench sisters had lived there and how they were essentially cannibals and they'd eaten young children. And that he talks about other people and bad things that had happened at the building does kind of make you seem to to get a feeling that the Bramford building itself has been just a, 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 I don't know what you want to call it, but like a, a home for a hell mouth or a portal or something. Yeah. You're new to town. You know, you, you worship Satan. Yeah. Go to the, go to the Bramford building. They'll take care of you. Nowadays, somebody would do it. It's like French sisters needs to be like a spinoff movie. Hey. You know, that just sounds horrible. Rosemary but... multiverse. Yes. Exactly. Rosemary did need one ally at least, but he's like it, isn't it? I wouldn't consider her original doctor really an ally, especially. Oh, no. But he does his character That's what makes Bill. it so, not only is he just a great character and you like the actor, but it makes it so heartbreaking when he gets pulled out of the picture and Rosemary then has nobody. I thought it was interesting because she, she almost forgets about him. I mean, as, as the spell that they be kind of even weaved on her, and she's months passed by. We're kind of leaping ahead a little bit in the timeline. And then we get this discovery that, well, yeah, actually several months have passed and he's been in a coma this whole time. But now he's come out of the coma and he's trying to give her this hint before he ends up dying. The clues that he gave her, I think that caught them by surprise. Mm-hmm. I think that his death 
was caused indirectly by them, but not necessarily his final death. Maurice yeah. Evans is, is, yeah, such a great actor. And it, it was sad when his character just kind of was removed. We don't see any scenes with him. He's just kind of there and he's, then he's gone. It would have been nice to, to have maybe a little bit more of him in the movie. Yeah, I agree what you, with what you said. Uh, back to the part about talking about the baby. That threw me for a little bit of a loop because I thought, okay, wait a minute. Why are they harvesting this baby? You know, is it to be a sacrifice? Are they going to kill the baby? I don't know if you really realize at that time that they want to raise it to be the son of Satan. Yeah, you don't know at first Yeah, what's going on. I liked that. The whole situation with her hair was was kind of weird. She had cut her hair short before the making of this film. So she's actually wearing a wig in those earlier scenes. Now I thought she was much more attractive earlier on the movie. I'm, I'm, you know, short hair was like, eh, kind of harsh. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out the significance of that because if she had short hair, she could have just had short hair from the very beginning, unless it was just, Hey, well, you know, we'll have that play into it maybe. And like, this part of, of what you're going through and the change your body's going through and you just decide, I'm going to cut my hair. And then there's the scene where Guy is not a real big fan of it. But then that's kind of it. They don't mention the hair again. Did I, I don't know if I missed something or what was the whole point of all that? A couple of things that I think about. First of all, that was right after she learned she was pregnant. And she mentions Vidal Sassoon did it like several times. Maybe she was just celebrating and and the fact that a, a high profile hairstylist cut her hair was a way for her to celebrate. And the other thing, and they could have done it with the wig, but I really think as her early months of being pregnant and being in pain and her, she makes a visible change of looking well, bad. Everyone tells her she looks bad. She does. She does. Her hair certainly bad. contributes to that. Yeah, I guess that's true. She had this kind of like, Pollyanna look early on in the film, and then she gets this really kind of harsher look. And with makeup and lighting, of course, they're making her look like she's lost weight. She's not looking healthy. I mean, she's definitely visibly paler than everybody else. Circles yeah, under her does, eyes. But well, yeah, when she does the party, you know, people are like, you know, are you okay? You don't look well. <laughs> but we really shouldn't question any of her actions because she's got the son of Satan inside her. Well, this is true. The scene where she is walking like through the traffic across the street. Apparently that was real. I guess she was told, yeah, do that. No one will hit a pregnant lady. <laughs> and so they were just banking on the fact that the cars weren't going to stop. It's an effective scene, but yeah, one of those kind of rogue filmmaking that you don't get these days. Somebody on set would be like, nope, this, this is a, a bad moment waiting to happen. The scene where she's like eating, I thought it was raw meat. I guess it was raw liver. I guess that was real raw liver. And she was a vegetarian at the time, but she did it for her craft. The tannis root is basically called the devil's pepper or the fungus. That's kind of an interesting touch because you always, you know, the magical potion and then, you know, Ruth Gordon, you know, what's in it, you know, like, you know, snails and puppy dogs' tails. And it's a, Ruth Gordon being. So good. She's tamed down here a little bit in some scenes compared to like what she would do. I think in some, I always think of her, you know, as Ma in the Every Which Way But Loose movies with Clyde, the orangutan. That is sad that that's how you think of Ruth Gordon. You should at least think of her from 
whatever happened to Aunt Alice. No. What's oh what's the big movie she did with the younger boy? Um Harold and Maud. Yes. Yeah. No, That's I mean, how you should remember Ruth Gordon. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Once you kind of dive into what it is and you're getting told it smells, it's horrible, it's this and that. I don't know. I just thought that was kind of did you also catch the Tannis root does not exist? It's not a thing in real life. Oh, we've been talking about the, the cast. Let's maybe let's dive into the cast because there's so many great people in this yep. movie. We, we, you got Mia Farrow as Rosemary. Uh, at this time, she was most well known for being on Peyton Place. She had been in 263 episodes. Peyton Place, for anyone who doesn't remember, was kind of a primetime soap opera. It was the first primetime soap opera. Peyton Place, once it ended, didn't really have much footprint on television. It's part of television history. And she was she was a big part of that. But she was also married to Frank Sinatra, which was uh, another claim to fame. Other movies that she was in, Haunting of Julia, Avalanche, uh, 1978's Death on the Nile. She was in, uh, she played Allura in Supergirl, 1984. She was in the remake of The Omen in 2006. John Cassavetes as Guy Woodhouse. Uh, Lots of TV work. He was also in Alfred Hitchcock, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. He was in The Incubus in 1981. Um, He died at a young age. He died at the age of 59 of cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, He was a heavy drinker, and he died in 1989. Of course, Ruth Gordon as Minnie Castavet uh, was also in Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice, as we mentioned, Harold and Maude. She was in the Every Which Way But Loose and Every Which Way You Can movies. She was also in the sequel to this, Look What Happened to Rosemary's Baby in 1976, which I've never seen, but will be soon. Can I pause there and and just shower a little praise on her? I love Ruth Gordon, and she's so good in this. Yeah. There is... Absolutely. Oh, what were the couple of scenes I wanted to point out? Well, for one... I think it's at the end of the movie, but Rosemary's carrying a big old knife and she drops it and the point sticks in the floor. So the knife is sticking out of the floor. Ruth Gordon pulls it out and just seamlessly and as commonplace as possible. Like, I don't know if she licks her finger, but she like rubs the spot where the the knife had been sticking in on the floor. And that's just such a detail that is terrific. And she is just such a character I just think she's amazing in this movie and she well deserved the Academy Award. And here's the other thing when they do find the body on the ground and they meet for this first time and she's really unaware of Rosemary and Guy standing there. And so when Rosemary says something, Ruth Gordon holds up her glasses like and kind of squints to see, but she's holding them cockeyed. Yeah. And it's, it's just like, who the heck are you talking to me? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Sydney Blackmare plays her husband, Roman. A lot of film credits. He was kind of a character actor, 178 credits. Film debut was all the way back in 1914. He was in a movie called Deluge in 1933, which you and I have both seen that. He was in Charlie Chan at Monte Carlo. Always mention the Charlie Chan movies because that seems to be a lot of stars of the day were in those. Uh, Early television, though, he was in Suspense, Tales of Tomorrow. He was also in Thriller, Alfred Hitchcock. He was in The Outer Limits. And uh, actually, he died of cancer later on in 1973, October 6th, to be specific, at the age of 78. Maurice Evans as Hutch. Now, of course, we all know him as Dr. Zayas in Planet of the Apes and Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Terror in the Wax Museum. He was in The Six Million Dollar Man. Batman fans may know him as The Puzzler. 
he took on the persona of the puzzler in season two. It was originally supposed to be the Riddler, but Frank Gorshin had kind of had a falling out. He wanted more money. He went off and left. And so they were left with a couple of scripts. What do we do? Well, we'll just change it around and come up with the puzzler. Then later on in the season, they got John, John Aston to do his stint before uh, Frank Gorshin eventually came back. Thought he was in a whole lot more than this, but he was only in 12 episodes of Bewitched as Elizabeth's father, Maurice. Ralph Bellamy, another great actor, plays, I think we can call him the evil Dr. Saperstein. He's got a way about him where you kind of think, well, okay, he's just going against the system and stuff. And then, yeah, there's definitely, towards the end of the movie, it's like, nah, he's evil. He's evil. He knows exactly what he's doing. And of course, we know him from The Wolfman. He was in His Girl Friday. Played Ellery Queen in four films in a film series in 40 and 41. He was also in Ghost of Frankenstein and lots and lots of TV work. Well-known actor. The character of Terry was played by Victoria Vetri. Miss September 1967. Also a Batman credit, she played Florence of Arabia in the third season Batman episode, I'll Be a Mummy's Uncle. She was in the infamous B picture, and I said B as in the letter <laughs> B, Invasion of the Bee Girls. And, of course, she made her mark in Hammer as well in When Dinosaurs Rule the Earth. I've got a point there to make, too. She was billed as Angela Dorian. So when Mia Farrow says, hey, you look like the actress Victoria Vetri, I didn't know that that was really her. Neither, that was honestly, really yeah. interesting and fun. The character of Laura Louise was played by Patsy Kelly. She was kind of the odd woman. She's the one at the end of the movie where she's like rocking the baby real crazy and telling Rosemary, get away, get away. Patsy Kelly was actually a well-known comedian. She did a series of short films with Thelma Todd in the 1930s, right before Thelma Todd's death. She ended up being a character actress But she also dated Tallulah Bankhead, kind of in secret. She worked as her secretary and then did other things behind closed doors, apparently. Her persona was being the the, uh, secretary. This was part of her comeback in films towards the latter part of her life. We mentioned uh, Alicia Cook Jr. as Mr. Nicholas, 219 credits character actor. We've talked about him before. House on Haunted Hill, Messiah of Evil, Bionic Woman, Night Stalker, Blackula, and yes, Samuel Cogley, attorney at law in the first season Star Trek episode, Court Martial. Emmeline Henry played Elisa, or Elisa, Lisa Dunstan. Everybody knows her. 35 episodes of I Dream of Genius as Amanda Bellows, the wife of Dr. Bellows, always trying to find what's going on with Tony because she never trusted him at all. She died at a young age, died in 1979 at the age of 50 of brain cancer. Charles Grodin, (laughs) butthead Dr. Hill, the guy you think is going to save the day, but then he doesn't. I don't think that he was part of their little thing. He just felt that Dr. Saperstein could walk on water, and so he didn't believe Rosemary at all. He goes way, way back to our very first episode. He was in King Kong, 1976. Other films like The Heartbreak Kid, Seems Like Old Times, Midnight Run, and Beethoven, amongst others. Character of Mrs. Gilmore was played by Hope Summers, better known as Clara Edwards, in 32 episodes of The Andy Griffith Show and five episodes of Mayberry RFD. And she also starred as Susanna Blush 
and the ghost of Mr. Chicken, along with a lot of other Andy Griffith alumni, including Don Knotts. One other person we should mention is Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis as the voice of Donald Baumgart. Tony Curtis, the father of Jamie Lee Curtis, who started that little movie, Halloween. We don't know whatever happened to her in the film. Legendary actor. I could not find what's the story behind him providing a voice. Oh, I read that, but I don't remember. I think it was maybe he was one of Frank Sinatra's buddies. And Mia Farrow did not know it was going to be him. And so her look of confusion when she answers the phone is real. And I think she did realize who it was. But I I don't remember if that's why, just because of the Rat Pack and all that. That connection. That would make sense. Yeah. A lot of familiar faces in this one, most definitely. And people that you normally would not expect to be Satan worshipers playing the part, which I think was, was added to the fun. Ira Levin wrote the original novel in 1967, and he actually wrote a sequel 30 years later called Son of Rosemary in 1997. I forgot that. I think I knew that. It probably is quite different than the sequel we did get, which is Look What Happened to Rosemary's Baby, which was actually a made-for-TV movie in 1976. I've never seen that. I will be watching it. In this month of July, I'm going to be covering it over at my blog. I know you've seen it. Yeah, and I wrote about it as one of the 70s TV movies. I actually kind of liked it. Don't expect anything near this. But it has some interesting angles on the story of him growing up. Now, Ruth Gordon is in that, correct? Well, I'd forgotten that, but I think you're right. Cameo role, maybe? Yeah, I think so. Loose connection. Okay. Actor Craig Littler plays a character called Jimmy. I'm oh, gonna... yeah, Jimmy. Don't you remember him? Was he at the party, maybe? I maybe don't know. Somebody... Okay. Yeah, I had to throw this in when I saw it. He played the lead role of Jason in Jason of Star Command on Saturday mornings from 1978-1979. In the first season of Jason of Star Command, James Doohan plays the character of Commander Carnarvon. James Dewan, of course, being better known as Scotty on Star Trek. And for all 28 episodes of the series, Sid Haig plays the character of Dragos, the main villain of the piece, who's always out to get Star Command. Star Command was tied in with the Space Academy TV series that featured Jonathan Harris as the commander of the Space Academy. I saw that and I know the Star Trek connection. You know me. I've got to jump at those when I see it. I'd be worried if you didn't. Do you have anything else? Oh, man, we could talk all day about Rosemary's Baby. I do want to say that uh, our friend Steve Turek that we mentioned has done an episode on the Diecast movie podcast with Troy Howarth. Troy Howarth. Yes, Troy Howarth. Rosemary's Baby is one of his favorite movies of all time. That's a a very interesting discussion. I would recommend everyone listen to that. And I, you know, I've tried to be a little hoity toity here and there today but he he would have all those inner meanings of things so i i know i've listened to that but i'd like to listen again now that we've talked about yeah, i didn't want to a while before because i didn't want to steal any of his ideas but yeah i i thought the same thing it's been a while since i've listened to that episode and i was like no i don't want to listen to it until after we've done ours highly recommend you check that out and i, I highly recommend you check the movie out i mean yes 
I truly believe it is one of the handful of horror movies that is significant. We didn't even mention it influenced The Omen, probably The Exorcist. It was all part of the satanic panic of the 70s. But I just think if you you could only pick out a few movies that sort of mark the history of horror, this is definitely one of them. And if you haven't seen it, you just absolutely have to. And if you like it and you're trying to build some sort of significant collection, I, I think you should own it as well. Oh, my gosh. We got so wrapped up in the conversation. Uh, the lights are coming on. We need to head out of here. It is getting late. We need to head back to 2023. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up and talk about what we're covering in next month's episode. Yes. And now, folks, it's time to say good night. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Richard, I really don't have much new business this time. I No birthdays or anniversaries that I can tie into the show. Not really any new releases that we haven't already talked about. Do you know of anything coming out or any cool things that us monster kids should look into purchasing? <laughs> One thing is... Definitely monster-related. One is not, but fringe. So Robot Monster does get released on Blu-ray from Bayview Entertainment this month. Officially, those who were part of the Kickstarter or whatever uh, have got their copy of Robot Monster, as you have yours, and I know Steve Sullivan has. For those of us like me who forgot about it and didn't get in on that, July 25th will be the release date. Also... You know, we've been talking Westerns and stuff, and I know that Bill Myers mentioned it. I always give a shout out to Ben Modell, who does a lot of work with silent films. He's actually got a new release coming out in July, not monster-related in any way, shape, or form, but it's very cool. Tom Mix, unfortunately, a large chunk of his films no longer exist. But a couple of films have been given a formal restoration. July 18th, I believe, is the release date for... Sky High and the Big Diamond Robbery. Sky High, I think, was previously released by oldies.com, but the version that you're going to be getting here is a million times better. It's been restored. You can actually see the image. Big Diamond Robbery, I think, comes from 28 or 29. It's at the tail end of the silent era and has never been released on home media before. You know that song, Sky High by Newton? I love that song. I don't know that song. Well, if no one's putting out very much entertainment for us, Richard. We've got to create some from ourselves. So are you, what are you doing in your creative outlets? Anything to entertain the folks? Kind of taking the summer off, but I will try in the month of July to do some things tied in, some summer at the drive-in extras. Uh, I'm pretty sure look what happened to Rosemary's Baby will be coming up. And uh, maybe The Haunting, kind of connecting to the legend of Hell House a little bit. The calm before the storm. We are only months away from our favorite time of the year in October when things get really crazy and busy for all of us monster kids. If you're new to my blog, years and years worth of stuff that you go back and check out. I've been doing that for over a decade now. I guess if I did mention it, I will tell you that I do have my final list for the 70s TV movies. What I decided to do was, uh, I guess, last Friday, you would have read about 
Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, which coincidentally <laughs> played on Joe Bob last night, the very same day my Blu-ray arrived. I'm going to stop there. It's past the 70s, but it's sort of a pinnacle, as I understand. And what I'm going to do is go back down. I'm going to count backwards and pick up the movies that weren't available when I went up chronologically the first time. Oh, cool. It's so funny. That just shows you. I mean, there are so many that I missed because they weren't available at the time and now they are. That's going to extend a little longer until I get into my next project. All I have to tout, really. Next month, month three for our uh, fourth annual Summer at the Drive-In, we are going to be going back to 1968. I've been able to determine this is Labor Day weekend, 1968. Specifically, a Saturday night, August 31st, 1968, we'll be going to the Lakeshore Drive-In Theater in Greece, New York, for a fun, fun double feature of kaiju greatness. We will be seeing Godzilla versus The Thing, better known nowadays as Mothra versus Godzilla from 1964. If you want to play along at home, you can, uh, gosh, this movie is and on multiple places, you can stream it on Tubi, Flex, Pluto TV, the Criterion Channel, and Max. The definitive version is the Criterion release in Godzilla, the Showa-era films. One of the best of the Godzilla films. The other film we'll be watching is Reptilicus from 1961. This movie will be streaming on Tubi as well. It's on DVD from Cheesy Flicks. Fairly certain that's not going to be the best way to get it. There's been a variety of DVD and Blu-ray releases. I'm not sure that it's really in the public domain, but it seems like people treat it sometimes like it is. I think the best release this film has had, at least to my knowledge, is the MGM Midnight Movies DVD release, which has long since been out of print. Both these movies are going to be fairly easy for you to find. I think we should give a, a hint that we will probably have another guest Sadly, we're already two-thirds of the way through our annual summer at the drive-in. Next month, we will wrap things up for the summer. Richard, you did not know it, but you made a perfect segue when you said wrapping things up. Because ah. we are closing with a rap song. Oh, no. <laughs> the song is called Hell House. It's by Dark Lotus from the 2004 album Black Rain, available on Apple Music. There are so many temptations right now, but I'm, I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. Thank you for listening, everyone, <laughs> yes. joining us at the drive-in. We will talk to you next month. Yes, take care, everyone. In every neighborhood, you got your house that's supposedly haunted. Well, in our neighborhood, there's the hell house. And right now, nobody can believe it. But there's a sign out front of hell house that says... They tell me you can see the chalk lines in the middle of the living room A sure sign that somebody must have died there I think they said it was a bride and a groom And I guess they both died trying to run for the stairs I don't care, shoot me a price, I wanna move in quick I wanna sleep with the bodies while the blood still drips Call me crazy but it's just what I want I really hope that shit happen and it's not just a front kitchen, this kitchen floor is full of cracked towels and rat traps When this thing is up the drips, I'll make your head crack And those covered doors smacking open and closed A priest came to do a blessing but he got hoes in the file And that's just the beginning Cause all the shelves are stacked with plates that be spinning on them And I heard the drawers open and knives get the flinging The folks that stayed here caught 17 Did in you them. hear it?